hour number two of the show here on your Monday. Good to be with you. Once again, keep an eye on the weather here. We could get some storms tonight. Don't quite know. It depends on where they fire up. Could be a little hail. Could be a little wind. Could all be south of the metro area, too. Just keep an eye out there if you're heading out this evening. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. I want to welcome back to the show Professor of Political Science at the University of Minnesota, the Andrew Carnegie Fellow uh, to this year. Uh, it is Professor Tanisha Fazal. She is kind enough to join us to talk a little bit about what is going on in Ukraine and Russia right now, uh, particularly from the interesting point of military medical preparedness, and she's kind enough to take some time today to talk about this issue. Professor, thank you very much. Nice. Welcome back. Thank you very much for the time today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I, I want to point to an article that I'm going to post a little bit later on that you wrote here to help Ukraine send more uh, first aid. Uh, and this obviously, as the Biden administration has put forward the idea of sending over cluster bombs as a way to help out, your comment to me was, uh, instead of sending this over, we should be sending more medical aid. Uh, is is there a real need for medical aid right now for the Ukrainian troops? I think there is. I mean, I think just in general, military medicine is can really give countries an advantage in war. There was actually an article in the Wall Street Journal last week that uh, the headline was something like Ukraine's military medicine gives it a quiet edge. Um, and we know that Ukraine has better military medicine than Russia, at least right now. So the Russian case fatality rate, which is the percentage of people who are, um, who reach, who are injured and actually reach a hospital, who reach medical care is 20%. So about 20% wow. of, of Russians. Um, are dying. But the Ukrainian one is lower at 14%, but you know, ideally should be even lower. The reason that the Ukrainians have better medicine is, you know, they have better tourniquets, and we know that hemorrhage is the main cause of preventable battle death. Um, they're also using whole blood in a pre-hospital setting. They're getting a lot of medical aid, and they're trained on guidelines that were developed in the U.S., but I think it's especially important for the Ukrainians to receive medical aid because we all know that Ukraine is at a population disadvantage vis-a-vis Russia. There are just fewer Ukrainians than Russians, and so it's that much more important to be able to take better care of them. Do you think part of the problem is that big countries like the U.S. and U- uh, the U.K., Germany, um, the mentality is, well, we'll send in the big guns. We'll send in the munitions, the weaponry, the tanks. We'll send that stuff in. We'll we'll leave it to and just you know pulling a, a, a country out. Albania, Albania will send over the support system. Is is that part of it? The feeling that that some of these countries that are sending aid over feel as if, well, since we're the the the, the big countries with the big military, clearly we want to send munitions, not the medical aid. I think I would flip that a little bit and say that the issue is actually more that the Ukrainians, that's how the Ukrainians view it, the way that you just presented it, where they really want to get a lot of lethal aid. And they understandably see major powers, more advanced industrialized countries like the U.S. as an important source of that aid. Um, But... From the U.S. perspective, actually, there's a pretty strong argument to be not sending offensive aid, to send more um, defensive aid, right, because that really lowers the risk of 
a confrontation with Russia, which is something that the U.S. rightly wants to avoid. Uh, and I think medical aid definitely fits that bill. And the reality also is that U.S. medical aid is just going to be better than Albanian medical aid. Yes, well, it would, you know, and, and hey, I'm a veteran myself. I was always amazed by, you know, I, okay, I know it's kind of stupid, but I, I grew up watching MASH and stuff. But then when you go into like a real field medical unit, when I was in military and we go out for field maneuvers, they were, this was back in the early 90s. They were incredibly impressive back then. I can only imagine with the, the technological advances that, you know, in some cases it is like wheeling a, a, an actual hospital out to a, a, a conflict zone and being able to, you know, address, as you said, it's it's the importance of being able to address the injuries immediately and quickly, because if you can do that, you're going to get those soldiers back into the field fairly quickly. I think that, yeah, that's exactly right. And that's part of a big part of the story of why the U.S. is so successful. I would say that military medicine is one of the few successes of the Afghan and Iraq wars are the few silver linings. I don't even know how the right word here is, but um mm-hmm. But I think it's important to recognize, and this goes to a point you were just making, that one of the reasons that there was such great success on the military and medical front in those wars was because the U.S. had air superiority Mm -hmm. against its foes in Iraq and Afghanistan. So there was uncontested airspace, and so the U.S. could really leverage air evacuation. Now, if we turn to the war between U.S., excuse me, between uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, the air airspace is very much contested. And so evacuation times are much longer. So the U.S. operated under what was called the golden hour policy in Afghanistan starting in 2009, which meant that if somebody was injured, they had to be evacuated to a higher level medical facility in under an hour, because we know that getting medical care in that time frame greatly increases the odds of survival. In Ukraine, it's taking a lot of times closer to a day to get from the front to a hospital. So you're, you're not able to, to send somebody, you know, a medevac chopper or, um, you know, a flying ICU in the way that the U.S. is able to in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, so for medical aid, obviously you talked about, you know, in very bluntly, you know, a tourniquet, being able to stop the bleeding on the field. Um, I remember shock as well is another huge, um, you know, uh, problem when you, when you have, uh, you know, you know, soldiers that have been injured and in trying to, you know, get them back in, in, a, in a reasonable time. What, what other medical uh, aid would you suggest the U.S. get to Ukraine right now? Well, I think that there are two main kinds. Um, I mean, you know, one has to, certainly we have to keep supplying them with modern tourniquets. I mean, if you see, if you watch videos on social media, it seems the Russians have been using basically a strip of rubber, like World War II era tourniquets, modern tourniquets. You can self-apply, you can tighten them one-handed. That's what they're actually sometimes called a one-handed tourniquet. Um, but there's a lot of, um, you know, things like, better, you know, up-armored ambulances, uh, just basic supplies, right, gauze, et cetera. And a lot of charities are stepping into the breach, but what they're doing is not necessarily as their efforts are, by definition, not as centralized. But the other, another important uh, contribution that the U.S. could make in the military and medical front is simply training. So a lot of Ukrainian forces have been trained in what's called tactical combat casualty care, which is a set of guidelines and practices that the U.S. developed during the Afghanistan and Iraq wars and has been shown to, to put it bluntly, save a lot of lives. 
Um, but in order to really train people, this is it gets a little tricky because you, it's really hard to get Ukrainian forces to Poland, for example, for training. And we don't necessarily want to have U.S. forces in Ukraine. So I think that bureaucratically is one of the challenges in, um, in moving forward on, on that particular issue. Uh, professor Tanisha Fazal is joining us, uh, uh, professor of political science over at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. We're talking. We talked about you, uh, Russia last time as well, and you had made the point that this was uh, they were having the same problem. Basically, the entire military was is that through black market sales, troops and supplies that were supposed to be there for these military units just were not not in the numbers they needed for what they were about to try to do. Where are they at right now? Because it doesn't sound like, and it's hard to get real information about this. I imagine you get much better sources. Where are the Russians at? Because it sounded like reality is is that they're in a much worse situation as far as the medical care their troops are receiving in that combat zone. Yeah, I think that's right. And I wouldn't necessarily assume that I have much better information because we should note that casualty statistics are part of the information warfare landscape here. Neither side wants to reveal what their own casualty numbers are, for example. So, uh, you know, with respect to Russia, what I would say is that there has been some improvement in medical care over the past year, but it's pretty minimal, especially compared to what the Ukrainians have been doing. So the Ukrainians, in contrast to the Russians, are starting to use whole blood in a pre-hospital, very forward setting, which is, you know, goes to your point earlier about dealing with hemorrhage. Um, but I think that we see the effects of poor Russian military medicine in a few different dimensions. There's poor medical care for the troops. Um, here I'm guessing a little bit, but, but basically but we, what we know about who's fighting and who's been fighting on the Russian side lately is that, you know, there are conscripts. A lot of them are, are recently released prisoners. And so they're probably their, their health is not that great to start with. Um, they know that they won't receive good medical care, and that is um, a, a, that knowledge is going to lower their morale and therefore make them less willing to fight. I mean, we see Russian troops oftentimes described as cannon fodder, and when you see in, in, the, in the media uh, interviews with Russian troops, they're describing themselves as cannon fodder mm. because they understand what's what. Well, and that's in, that's an interesting part of it because, and it's the whole thing. And once again, as a veteran, I mean, I think some of this stuff is very fascinating as far as learning how, whether it was learning how to keep feet dry in, in World War One, or, you know, making sure you're feeding the troops, because if you're not feeding them, that's going to be a pretty big problem pretty quick. And so, you know, you have to have clean water, you have to have good food, you have to have medicine, you have to have these support systems in place. And Russia just, I mean, at least not in a full scale military combat mode, they just don't have that. And as you said, I mean, there are a lot of videos of these soldiers saying, please do not send us to our death because you're sending us out there without the equipment, without food, in some case, without wet, without bullets and, and in expecting them to be some sort of success ratio. It's just not, it just doesn't seem to be there. Yeah. I mean, I think the Russian strategy is just one of numbers. Mm -hmm. That's what they're trying to leverage that they have just a much bigger population. Any idea? You, you talked about the casualty rate, and yeah, I mean, the, the Ukrainians are saying 200,000-plus 200, Russians have died. I saw one number which seemed to be, just looking at the, the formula there, it seemed to be lacking some potential numbers. They were saying fifty to 60,000. Any guess on how many Russians have died in Ukraine at this point any, from, from what you've read? 
No, I don't think I'd want to hazard a guess. I think mm-hmm. that the, the best numbers I can give you is the numbers that I started the conversation with, and this is from a um, a DIA report about the case fatality rate, but that's just giving you a percentage as opposed to yeah. um, absolute numbers. So 20% was that percentage, correct? Yeah, for the I think the the, the DIA said the Russian CFR is 20% and Ukraine's is about 14%. So about one in five Russian casualties are dying after they reach medical care and about one in seven of Ukrainian casualties. So, and I know that, you know, you, you've been focusing on this and by the way, fascinating stuff. And I will post that article that you, you wrote about the medical aid to Ukraine, because I think that that's a very incredibly valid point, especially since a lot of people are like trying to tap the brakes a little bit. It's like, what's this about cluster bombs now? Uh, I think it's a good argument that we can make that maybe this is a, a better way to, to address issues there. But let's looking looking at the conflict as a whole, and as much as you know you're comfortable talking about, it seems as if there is a counteroffensive going on right now by Ukraine. Russia has blown up dams to basically try to slow it down. It does seem like it's not in any kind of speedy way, but it does seem like there are Ukrainian advances against the Russians right now. And as you said, there's a lot of videos of Russians basically saying, don't send us out there to be the cannon fodder. From what you're seeing, is is that somewhat accurate, or are, are you you seeing other information that's coming on down? No, I think that's right. But you know, there's a lot going on. It's not just what's happening on the battlefield. There, you know, there's there's a NATO meeting about, and one of the questions, of course, is what Ukraine's status is going to be vis-a-vis NATO. There are a lot of questions circulating around. Um, you know, the question of war termination, should Ukraine and Russia be pushed toward a peace table? Um, but it is it is interesting that there is, you know, this a lot of talk about the counteroffensive. And I think Zelensky is clearly trying to moderate expectations, either because things are maybe going a little bit more slowly than he thought, or maybe because the plan was always to have things, or the expectation was always that it was going to go slowly. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like they're making some advances um, but I, you know, I, I still think I don't see too many signs that this is going to end anytime soon. I, I, I would, think the advances are enough to, to end the war. I, I agree with you. I, I look at Zelensky trying to just make enough advances to where it's going to be very hard for someone to come in saying, "Oh, well, you need to move back and give that territory that you've won back to the Russians." It, it makes it a much more complicated thing if if those individual states within Ukraine are still completely occupied by Russia. Then there, there's the argument you could say, well, Russia will allow Russia to take those. But if Ukraine has made some advances into those states again, then it, it becomes a much more you know uh, drawn out process if there's going to try to be some sort of forced peace. Are you from from that slightly little bit of Russian uprising from a few weeks ago? Uh, did you take anything away from that because? If anything, I I was amazed at how weak the Russians looked at that point when they had their their uh, the Warner Group basically or the excuse me the Wagner Group kind of turn and basically storm towards Moscow. And it was interesting to see all the Russian leadership run to St. Petersburg to get out of Moscow. There seemed to be a real fear there that this government that government was going to get overthrown. Yeah, I think I took, yes, um, it was, you know, interesting, I think is too small a word to use to describe what it was like to watch that unfold. I think for me, there were two uh, sets of questions or two takeaways. You know, I definitely agree with you about the exposure of the brittleness of the regime, but there were, you know, 
we all know Putin is, is a bad guy, but um, there are a lot of questions raised about if he were to fall, who would replace him? Um, and would that person, could that person be worse? Um, I mean, I think the answer is yes, that the person could be worse, but we don't know who that would, who, whether, who that would be. But for me, another question, and, you know, I'm not an expert in Russian politics or Russian civil military relations, but another question for me is, Insofar as Russia is essentially trying to disband the Wagner Group, um, what implications does that have for the supply of troops, mm-hmm. um, given that that's, that's who was supplying a pretty large percentage of Russian troops um, up, up, up until that you know, would-be coup? Well, and it definitely seems to be a lot of those troops are not loyal to Russia. Correct. Yeah. Uh, you know, that is fascinating. And I don't think that's over. Uh, I mean, and as a matter of fact, I think, is it fair to say from your assessment that Putin is seen as a much weaker leader today because of what happened there? That I mean, he still is in charge of Russia. He still is there. He's still pushing into Ukraine. Um, he's still putting on, you know, you know, trying to dot the I's and cross the T's as this kind of desperate leader. But the reality is, is when something like that happens, you can't help but look weaker than than you want to portray. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that you want to think about who the audience is. I think Putin does look weaker uh, with respect to the rest of the world, given his control over media inside of Russia. I don't have a really clear sense of how weak he looks uh, to the Russian population. But I will also say that insofar as he has been weakened, um, you know, there potential uh, there's a potential upside to that, but there's also a potential downside, which is that he could be even more desperate, mm-hmm. which can, in desperate people, do desperate things. Indeed. Uh, Professor, fascinating stuff. I'm going to make sure I post up the article a little bit later on. By all means, I, I, I appreciate you coming back. I'd love to have you back again once again a, little, a few months down the road to talk more about this because obviously this is a incredibly complicated and complex situation and you give some really great insight into something I think that is ignored in a lot of the news that's covered in regards to the Ukrainian conflict. So thank you very much. I appreciate the time today. Good to be with you. My pleasure. Professor Tanisha Fazal from the University of Minnesota, professor of political science and an Andrew Carnegie fellow. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950.